Alberto, are you set? Oh, thank you. Alberto, are you set? Okay, let me know. We are live. I can. Thank you. Thank you, sound people, for your help. Thank you, Alberto, for videoing. Thanks to all of you for coming. I feel very live, in a sound sense. So the question I was going to ask you. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> I'm not sure we should. Oh, what about on social media? Your four observations. Ah, oh, sure. Just recount those. Hmm. The mics are on. They're on. Hey, do you like my new sweater? I like it. Is it new? Really? Okay, so while they're working on the sound, when I first got here, anybody here who was here when I first got here? No. So I'm free to make up anything I want. Um, well, what... Uh, uh, an elderly Oops. couple who were sitting right over there, who were both hard of hearing... Uh, more than once, uh, the, the man, the husband, would lean over to the wife and say very loudly, I won't do it right now because the mic's on, but, preacher's got a new tie on! <laughs> and everybody could hear us. <laughs> and it was very sweet. How are we doing, Alberto? <laughs> yeah. It was a sweet right. couple, thankful for them. And Thanks. Preacher did have a new tie on, hey, actually. Man, I bet it good. Thankful somebody noticed. Brothers and sisters, good to have you all here tonight. Thank you for joining us. And for those who are on Zoom, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't been with us the past uh, few of these, we had three teaching sessions. I gave a message on how to pursue unity amid disagreement several weeks ago. Isaac gave one on why it's hard to talk about race in the church. And Mark gave one on politics in the local church, and especially navigating political disagreements. How can we be unified despite them? Uh, we thought as a way to conclude this little series, it would be useful for us to just have some open discussion. So Mark and Isaac and I will talk just among the three of us for about the first half of the time, trying to think about how to apply some of the things we were teaching, think about practical application, and then we'll open it up uh, to everybody in the room uh, for any uh, encouraging testimonies you want to share from your own experience or good things you've seen in other people's lives in the church, uh, or any questions or comments you'd have for us about anything we talk about tonight, or really anything we've talked about in the whole series. Uh, we will be recording just the first half of the time together, and let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us one in Christ, and we thank you that that is a, a gift of the gospel and an achievement of your Son and Spirit. We thank you that we are one body, though we are many, and we pray that as we speak tonight, uh, that, that especially you give Mark and Isaac and I wisdom uh, to help us all build, each up other in build up each other in love. And we pray you'd give us all wisdom as we talk and reflect together. Uh, grant us to grow in being agents of unity. Grant us to see the good that unity is. Grant us to desire it. Uh, and grant us especially to have wisdom for how to promote unity, even when we disagree about matters that can be substantial. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe it's a good time to mention tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I didn't have normal sort of uh, announcements uh, thank you, Mark. So tomorrow night, in place of our Wednesday night Bible study, we're having a Q&A with Riley Barnes, who serves us as an elder, and whom the elders have nominated to serve as an associate pastor. 
Uh, so that'll be 7 to 8. You'll sign up for it, uh, like for Wednesday Night Bible Study. Mark will lead that uh, the first maybe half or so of the time will be Riley's testimony and Mark leading some questions for Riley. And then with whatever's left of the time, anybody can ask questions to, to get to know Riley better, learn about the role, that kind of thing. So we've nominated him in September. Lord willing, we plan to vote uh, in our November members meeting. Uh, and then, Lord willing, on Sunday, we'll be back here for core seminars at 930. Uh, and back at the Anacostia Park field where we were, uh, although probably at 330. Is that right, Jamie? Definitely. Yeah, definitely at 330 this Sunday. Same time, different place. Uh, and now for our conversation. Same place, different time. That's what I meant. Same place, different time. Uh, thank you, Jamie. So, Bobby... Yeah. Since you gave the first talk, sure. Bobby's done all the work to come up with questions for tonight, mm. which we both looked at and talked to him about, but I just let sure. me kick it off for your talk because you went first. That's fine. And uh, you gave a very useful talk on just how do we approach the whole area of differences. And since I listened to that talk, uh, a number of members of the congregation encouraged me to watch this, the documentary that I know a number of you have watched called The Social Dilemma which I did then go and watch. And uh, it highlights how the very social media that a lot of our members participate in make difficulties or exaggerate difficulties and differences. And you had four very helpful observations about using social media, which after I watched The Social Dilemma, I appreciated even more. Mm -hmm. So if we want to kick off living with differences, Sure. No bad thing for you just to quickly remind us, uh, any you recall, uh, that would be good dis directions for us in, <laughs> in using social media. Sure. Well, let's see if I can remember the points. I talked about why it's difficult to fulfill Ephesians 4.29 on social media. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And I'm trying to remember my four points now. One is that social media has an online disinhibition effect. That is, you say stuff to someone uh, via screen and pixels that you wouldn't say face-to-face -face, or you'd say very differently face-to-face. -face. You'd get live feedback that would have a tendency to temper uh, what you're saying. So there's an online disinhibition effect. Uh, another is that Ephesians exhorts us to speak as fits the occasion, but on social media there is no occasion, uh, particularly the way that social media platforms have changed over time. For instance, Twitter used to just be whoever you followed and they followed you. It was a more limited range of what you would see, whereas Twitter then started promoting likes and suggesting things, and then especially the retweet function, which wasn't built in from the beginning. The retweet function meant it was a kind of instant amplification and megaphone, uh, so Twitter became a kind of s communication snowball where things are sort of constantly being magnified, which makes it harder to have a kind of coherent and limited conversation among people who are interested in sort of good faith uh, participants. So there is no occasion. I'm trying to remember the other two things I said. Hmm. You said them so quickly I wasn't able to write them down. Hmm. But they were so good. Hmm. We can relish those two and move on to your good questions if you'd like. <laughs> oh, Ryan, do you have notes? Yes, tilted towards conflict, that's right. In other words, the mechanisms of, of likes, uh, retweets, and so on tend to sort of uh, amplify messages that have more conflict. And there's other uh, accidental ways that other agents can get involved and amplify conflict. And there was one more that I'm not remembering, but that's okay. Um, all that to say, my main word on social media was one of caution. 
I do think that we can do a lot of unintended damage on social media. Uh, social media can be helpful. I've sort of connected with a friend quasi via social media who I just had an extraordinarily helpful hour-long conversation with today, helping me with a project. Mm. You know, that social media was a sort of key piece of us connecting, and I think we've begun a friendship, and he was really helpful. And, um, so it's not that there's no good. Uh, but I think I would just caution, I think a lot of us tend to only see upsides and are, are more uh, ignorant of potential harm being done. I've got a question for you, Isaac. Uh, in your message a couple weeks ago, you helped us consider why it's hard to talk about race, why we should talk about race, and how we should talk about race. Two questions to follow up on that, one yeah. at a time. Uh, the first is, what good do you anticipate talking about race among church members will accomplish? Yeah, um, so... And thinking about this, I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll just start reading in verse 24. And Paul's talking about the diversity within the body uh, with spiritual gifts, but I think it would extend beyond that. But he says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I think these conversations give us an opportunity uh, to live out this union in Christ that we have, uh, to uh, suffer together and to rejoice with one another. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I talked about the aspect of our church covenant even within that talk. Uh, and you can go back to that second point um, and look at the other reasons I listed. So God's glory, we have an opportunity to be in stark contrast to the world. So all the arguing you see on Twitter, uh, we have an opportunity to have a different kind of conversation. Uh, that's an opportunity to educate ourselves on how we can love our neighbor better. It's an opportunity uh, to, for us to grow in holiness and repentance in that mm. sense in that sense. So we don't want to necessarily just sweep it under the rug because it's difficult. Uh, and, and one reason, and one kind of uh, assumption I'm making is that on, on some level, we're already having the conversation. So I was trying to get at how we can have it better in that sense. Um, because, you know, it's just something we're already talking about mm. uh, in that sense. So in that, in that way, we want to, uh, to be, try and be better about it in that sense. And how, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like your first Corinthians reference, the, in First Peter 2, you know, Paul, or Peter says, to husbands deliver their wives in an understanding way. Right. Very similar thought. And I think that one of the things that I've found over the years, uh, one of the things that interested me in your talk is you made the observation that for many people, this is probably the most ethnically diverse church they've ever been a part of. Mm -hmm. Which you might not think that at first, then you stop and you think for a moment, and I think many conversations I've had with people, and I think that is true for a lot of people in our congregation, whatever race, mm -hmm. um, because there is so much homogeneity mm -hmm. uh, in churches ethnically, um, that I think we're given a special opportunity here mm -hmm. to try to lean in and listen. And one of the things that uh, certainly over the years I've, I've learned is that just because somebody is a certain ethnicity, uh, that doesn't mean their story is going to be exactly like their story or their story who share the same right. ethnicity. Right. So they can have, these three people can all have the same experiences and yet they can all interpret them differently. Or these two may have a very different experience than this sister, but they all have a pretty similar interpretation of what's going on. It's just there's a, there is, as, as to be expected, a fascinating variety uh, of responses to situations and of uh, interpretations of events which mean uh, it, that brings different challenges for us as a society as a whole, but for our small society, the community, the Capitol Baptist Church, 
means we really need to love each other by mm. leaning in and listening and caring about each individual and trying to, to love appropriately. And that, and jumping on that, I think that that leaning in and that understanding, it increases our love. Mm. And, I, and I like what you were talking about with the homogeneity that uh, so many of us, not all of us, so many of us have grown up in, is that a lot of us, we can take that for granted. Mm -hmm. Or we can take the assumptions about, hey, this is, a, this is an ethnicity, it's a monolithic group, therefore they'll think the same. We can take those assumptions and realize that they're not true. In that sense, we want to kind of interrogate our assumptions. Uh, and Bobby, one, one last thing I'll add on this question just on uh, I think I've, I can hear the conversation more broadly, but uh, in the sense that Mark was talking about, we leave society and come in our, into our church, mm -hmm. you know, kind of what good is the conversation? I just want to go about pursuing justice or pursuing mm -hmm. these things. And I think if we, don't, if we don't think about why the conversation is so hard in the first place, we'll likely miss a lot of things uh, that would really help us be that much better and more effective mm -hmm. in our pursuit of loving our neighbor and loving each other. I appreciate that, brother. What would you say to the person who would say talking about race makes a problem where there wasn't a problem about race before? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would ask them. I would ask them a question, and I would ask them a question in response shortly to say, uh, how how is it uh, that it makes? How is it that you you know that it wasn't a problem before? Mm -hmm. Uh, because the reason I think this First Corinthians passage is useful is because I think in that, not always, but I think in that uh, can be assumption it's not a problem for me, or it wasn't, it wasn't explicit in this conversation. Uh, and it was like, well, it could have been implicit, uh, and we want to see how, uh, meaning it wasn't explicit. You, you didn't say it, and now you said it, so now it's a problem. It was like, well, it might have been a problem without either one of us saying it. I'm also not, I'm just not, sure of how much luxury we have to decide whether or not it is a problem. Um, certainly, there can be bad conversations about race. Certainly, it can be invoked uh, wrongly, no doubt about that. Uh, but it also is just a factor of which, kind of what Mark was saying, kind of wider society, we just live in a society in which race does matter, mm -hmm. or at least it certainly matters for some people, and that's why we want to think through hey, if it matters for you, how might this then matter to me because we are united? Your point about how do you know there's not a problem reminds me of an essay James Baldwin wrote about uh, visiting the South for the very first time. Mm. It was about 1962, 63. He, he was from New York City? He's from New York yeah. City. So he grew up in New York City, had never been south of the Mason-Dixon line, Vi and goes through South Carolina, Georgia, maybe Mississippi, um, and I think it was 63, and he said throughout his travels in the South, he was repeatedly assured by white persons that, their, uh, that race relations were good and amicable, mm. and he could find no single black person to agree with that assessment. Right, that's right, and that's right, and uh, yeah, I'll just, leave, I'll just leave it there. I think that's useful. Um, Isaac, a second question uh, related to this. What kinds of conversations between church members about race do you think are especially helpful? Any topics that you think are especially fruitful to pursue together? Yeah, I want to just read Ephesians 4.29. You talked about it earlier. It's just so, it's so instructive mm -hmm. on this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So I think those kind of conversations about race are the ones we want to have. I know you're asking more specifically. Sure. But generally, I think, hey, will this impart grace to this person? doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the person might not even be offended at times, but it means will this ultimately help this person? Um, 
So I, I, I think that's just such a useful, because it, like you said, it gets not only to audience, but it gets to timing, mm -hmm. it gets to context, uh, which is so useful. Um, but I do think, as I was thinking about this, uh, that experiences are useful to talk about and hear. Mm. Uh, so Mark, when you were talking about, you know, you, you grew up through, you know, desegregation and things like that. And, and just yeah, hearing- so the, the first year I was in public school in Madisonville, Kentucky, it was the first year the schools were desegregated. Mm. So and when I turn up as first grade as a student, it's the first time, at least in decades, right. that black and white children had been together right. in a public school. Right, and I remember you, because I think I asked you about how did, your, how did your, maybe your mother react when MLK was killed, and then you remember that versus other assassinations. And that was, that was fruitful, and uh, uh, maybe in a second I'll share more about just different ways I've seen members do that well. Uh, but I do think experiences are especially helpful to hear because, it, it, one, it's just kind of, it's not up for debate. It's like mm -hmm. you're telling me this was your experience when you were overseas. It's like, this is helpful for me to know. Again, it increases my understanding of you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really useful. And then you see, oh, wait, this experience is different than this experience, and both are valid experiences. And even if the person is wrong objectively in how they feel, maybe, it's like, uh, they feel that way, and that's still useful to know. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think sharing experiences is particularly helpful and useful. And it kind of, it takes the, uh, I find it can easily take a lot of the heat out of the conversation. It's like, oh, I know Mark. And it's really helpful for me to hear, like, ah, that happened in Mark's life. That does make it hard. So, uh, Any good examples that you've seen in the congregation that are encouraging to you and that you'd want to commend of, of having these kind of conversations? Yeah, uh, I was thinking of Proverbs 16.31, uh, which is just good on, it's Proverbs, it's all good. Uh, Proverbs 16.31, gray hair is a crown of glory, it is gained in a righteous life. Amen. <laughs> and I was going to talk about, uh, just how I've seen this in some of our older members, uh, because I think, I, you know, I, I kind of said offhand in my talk, uh, but I was thinking of this while I was writing it. I said, if you want to grow in patience, get around some of, get around John Collier, um, get, a, uh, get around um, Claudia. And those are, that's just one example I would highlight on the front end is, I, rem I think it was Jason Parker was maybe hosting a conversation uh, about these matters, and John and Claudia were on his little, his panel, uh, and John just began talking about his experience growing up in Memphis, growing mm. up in a public school mm. uh, in which he, which, they, I'll tell it kind of roughly, but effectively because it was separate and unequal, mm. he was, he, they only inherited the textbooks of the local white school. Mm. And not only is that its own because they come all ratty and mm. nasty, but beyond that, uh, John spoke about the notes that some of the white students would leave mm. in those textbooks for them mm. and just how horrific they were. Mm. Now, at this moment, all of a sudden, it was just like there's a, there's a weight there where it's mm. like, ah. And I remember Claudia just speaking so helpfully about how, how that, in a sense, rocked her and, and how mm. that, in a sense, helped her to, to, see a, to see these issues more differently and to hear them because she's looking at someone uh, who's in many respects her peer in life uh, and, not, and beyond her peer, a friend, and beyond her friend, a brother. Uh, and so before there are any of those things, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's just like, could it have been that you were treated that way? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so that's one example that comes to mind, uh, and I find that you can hear those stories if you just ask folks about them. Another one, Mark, I remember um, back when we had Sunday evening service. Um, Lord willing, coming back soon. Amen. Amen. I'm excited for the return. Um, you, I, th- I can't remember the occasion. Maybe it was King, the 50th a- uh, anniversary of King's assassination. You had Roger and Caroline. Yeah. Share that testimony. Uh-huh. I mean, it was just... <clears throat> It just is a different thing when you hear it that way. So young, squirrely me, you can hear me talk about it. But when you hear Roger and Caroline talk about it, uh, I think that was greatly helpful for the congregation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember Caroline just said that racism was virulent. It just Mm -hmm. was... It was everywhere. And it was, I remember when Lois yeah. Watson's mother passed, and we had Lois share in the evening service about her mom a little bit, right. and just the uh, the very sort of kind, parental, tough, motherly activism she engaged in over in Alexandria right. to get her kids' ability to play on a public playground. Right. You know, when it when it wasn't time for the non-white children to play there. Right. I mean, just stories like that, which are not the world that we're living in right now. But it's a very real world that many people we're interacting with have lived in. Mm-hmm. And if we've not lived in that world, I think it helps us to know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then that's where we, I think, can have the fruitful conversation about the effects of that past world, where we might disagree on certain points, but, uh, and seeing how that shadow is, does, and doesn't hang over us mm. today. Um, yeah. So. Mark, how has your understanding of the impact of race on American life and history changed over time? Oh, I've I've often had uh, occasion to observe that the older I get, uh, I don't think because I'm changing politically, I just think I know more people and I've heard more stories. Uh, I read history more richly. uh, And I go back and I read, sometimes I've literally read the same biography, Hmm. like literally written by the same person, and I notice different things. Different things will spring out to me. And certainly, you know, growing up when I did, where I did, I think in Madisonville, it was probably about 85% white, 15% black. There was one Hispanic family. I knew them. There was one Jewish family. They drove over to Indiana to go to synagogue. They were from New York. I mean, it was just very mm-hmm. homogeneous, southern, rural in the sense of that. So there were... Uh, there were ways that I knew people and was used to knowing people and, and a depth that I didn't have. And that's just being for me. There may have been other people from similar backgrounds who had different experiences. But I know that as I then, as an undergrad and then living in New England and then in, in England and then and the whole time maturing as a Christian and increasingly being in churches that are multi-ethnic just because as hmm. I think over the space of my lifetime, you know, what King said about 11 o'clock being the most segregated hour in America, I think it's still true, but it's less true. Mm-hmm. Just slowly but surely, the whole, the whole melting pot thing really is happening. Um, and I think my scores of, of deeply knowing and pastoring other people has made me notice different things when I read history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it hasn't... Some, sometimes people get very soured on American history. And I know that's one kind of stream right now. It hasn't made me sour at all. Uh, if you listen to my sermons in the, in the 90s, early 2000s, I'm always attacking America. I mean, we don't let that court down there define what's good for us. You know, they, they've said all kinds of false things in the past. doesn't mean I'm not thankful for the Supreme Court. I'm very thankful for our, our form of government. You know, I think, I think America has been richly blessed of God. But as a Christian, I have no trouble, 
in seeing God's rich blessings, in seeing how rich deserted his judgment because of our evil and, and our sins, and seeing both things together. Uh, you know, I think anyone who decries what's happened with the, the slaughter of infants in the last 50 years, really th- throughout most of my lifetime, and yet God's continued kindness to our country in so many marked ways. Uh, you know, th- this is uh, e- even the presidential election that we're engaged in right now. You realize that in many countries around the world, this would be accompanied by a level of violence mm-hmm. that we're not seeing here. So uh, I'm not trying to paper over any problems there are in our country, but I would just say as somebody who loves history, and literally every day I'm reading history. I just, it's like breathe, air I breathe. I can't not read it. Uh, I have, I'm noticing things now and in a way I wouldn't have uh, uh, that when I would have read the same thing 20 or 30 years mm. ago. You know, so just a, a favorite example of mine would be going to Mount Vernon. You know, I think when I was a teenager and I first went there, I was just like amazed at Washington and, you know, looking at the buildings architecturally and, you know, the things that I did. And then, uh, you know, growing up and reading biographies, Ron Chernow's biography, which is a good biography. If you want a biography to read of Washington, Ron Chernow, C-H-E-R-N-O-W. It's a very good one uh, to read. But reading it now as an adult and as a Christian who's matured, uh, I have far more concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ who I don't think are George Washington, but I do think are probably most of the people who physically built the building, who are enslaved people. And I have much more interest and concern and curiosity and respect uh, for what they did. And it's not that I then trash Washington entirely and think he was unimportant. No, he was a sinner who, even if he was not regenerate, I think God used to do some extraordinarily good things. But it's complicated and it's not all good. And me saying it's not all good doesn't make me unappreciative. And that's the thing. I mean, I have a PhD in history. Maybe that's the kind of nuance you expect from an egghead. But I would say it's consistent with the Bible and with Christianity to not be all negative or all positive. Well, or it's the kind of nuance you expect from uh, reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3, yeah. where everything created by God is good. Yeah. And we see various elements of that kind of drawn affected out in Genesis 2, yeah. but then all affected by the yeah. fall. Yeah. And so as Christians, we're always kind of looking at things in this world and going, good but fallen, good but fallen, good but fallen, yeah. good but fallen. And I think sometimes just as a kind of quick theological filter, you know, are you tempted uh, to, to not be able to see kind of one or the other of yeah. those things when you look around at other people, non-Christian neighbors, uh, what's going on in the world around us? I, I think for me, I think I've shared this publicly before, but I've had a, a number of tipping points, particularly on the race conversation. One was, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when my mom was visiting, mm. and I took her down to visit, um, mm, not Mount Vernon, but the one further south, George Mason's house. Gunston Hall. And it's just mom and I, were going through the tour, nobody much is there, so the person's giving the tour in a fairly matter-of-fact way, and blah, 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 blah. And we're in the dining room, and there's this little, I think it was a gold plate, uh, that the people serving the people at the table were to use when they would hand them anything. Uh, I'm feeling it even now as I'm recounting this. And I remember standing there with my mom, who's, you know, born 1937. Uh, and I don't know how she's hearing this, but when I'm hearing this person describe it very matter-of-factly, probably as a pastor who's pastored a lot of 18- and 20-year-old African-American women. Mm. You know, I'm sitting there, and I'm just thinking of, how incredibly this person is being made to feel that they are so 
there's something so wrong with them that they can't even be seen to touch the same thing as this other person sitting. And for some reason, that little detail just made an avalanche hmm. of experience just crush in on me. And, uh, and I think I, it was one of many incidents, but it stands out in my mind, made me a lot more sensitive in reading things and understanding people's experiences that it may seem like a small thing, but when that's been your whole life, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's sobering and it's, it's sad. And I think, I think that avalanche, Mark, I like how you phrase it around those tipping points. And those avalanches, I think, are profoundly important and we can underestimate them and mm. undervalue them in one another. And what I mean is I think we're quick to, I mean, even in, within racial tragedies that our church was in the midst of, like the rest of the nation was, whether it be just racial, let's just call them tension points or kind of epicenter. So George Floyd, uh, you know, a question often I think many of us can ask is what can I do? Hmm. Uh, but I think getting back to good not fallen, and when we look at the fallen, we realize in a fallen world we simply cannot fix everything. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean those kind of avalanches don't really change us, and we start looking at things and treating folks differently in ways that we might not even realize because of them, hmm. uh, and they're really important in that sense. Hmm. Uh, so in some sense, we have to be okay as Christians, uh, realizing that our job isn't to fix the world, but rather faithfully follow the one who will one day. Uh, but what he uses sometimes, and I hope he uses more through our conversations, are these kind of avalanche moments mm -hmm. in our life where we see and we hear those experiences and we look at that thing and we're like, oh, now I'm thinking of this person who I know being treated that way. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Um, Mark, let's change gears and, and focus on your message for a minute uh, on politics from just last week. Yeah. It feels uh, longer ago, but it it's just seven days. It does, yeah, seven long days. Um, you have said often that throughout your ministry here, you've been an equal opportunity offender of the right and the left, particularly yeah. blowing up utopian aspirations when some political agenda seems to be in the ascendant and maybe we can fix everything and change everything by doing X, Y, Z. You're particularly concerned to undermine those utopian goals. Um, it seems to me and a lot of observers these days that uh, perhaps an even stronger motivation for a lot of people is not utopian hopes, but dystopian fears. Mm. So I was talking to one friend who's very experienced in politics, who's talking about the sort of, uh, the way that polarization. So, so just to define, utopian hopes means you think you can make everything perfect in the world. Yeah. Dystopian fears means a terrible future, fearing that things are going to be horrible. Yeah. A, a friend of mine who's very experienced in politics was talking about the phenomenon of negative polarization, meaning things get more and more polarized the more that there's a sort of antithesis, or rather, it's about how bad I think they are, therefore, we sort of drift further and further apart, as opposed to uh, a positive vision that might come into conflict. So I guess, Mark, when you think about pastoring in a time that evidently feels in some ways more divided, a country that feels more polarized, do you still think utopian aspirations are a problem? There's more dystopian fears. Does that present a new challenge for pastoring? Kind of spiritual muscles you're trying to help people develop? How does that seem kind of the same or different? That's a great question. And you mentioned earlier today you were going to ask it. And when you said it then, I thought, what a good question. I've had no time to think about it sure. since then. But, uh, <laughs> wow, let's just think right now. Um, <laughs> we'll give them a moment. Yeah. Uh, I, I think... Uh, the utopian hopes are always going to be there. Sure. It's, it's human nature, and it's part of how, certainly if we were a secular people, we would, would be one of the common ways we make our work 
seem worthwhile. This is the answer. Right. This, will, this will fix things. I think the dystopian fears are really another sort of subset of secular atheism, hmm. you know, because as Christians, we just, we, we don't know hopelessness. We know temporary hopelessnesses, you know, we, we can know someone who is very sick and they're old and we don't assume they're immediately going to get better, but it's, it's just against our intellectual and spiritual nature and our own profound experience of being born again to be given over to a dystopian fear. I mean, that's just not, you know, we talk about these experiences when I'm, when I'm in Gunston Hall or, or, you know, Patricia or Lois is sharing their experience, their mom's experience. There are just experiences we've had of God's grace recovering people that mm-hmm. we've got 850 examples of in this church. And, you know, we just see this again and again. So there's no way for a Christian fear can be the basic note and the basic driver. And I think a concern that I as a pastor have and that, you know, comes out in individual conversations is when I see members of our church being driven mm. by those fears uh, and you just real, realize that mm, something's in the driver's seat there that shouldn't be, uh, how can I help them to recognize what they're seeing as a bad thing is in fact a bad thing, but it's not as powerful as they think it is. It's not as final. It's not as significant that somehow there has to be a larger picture of a good God and his sovereignty uh, under which sometimes mystifyingly uh, these hard things happen. So you're putting in God's sovereignty, his character, his purposes. Eschatology, the fact that we know that he wins, yeah. that, that Christ will return, uh, that there will be a kingdom of righteousness. Genuine, that harm, to that. genuine harm can come to people. Laws yes. can become more unjust. Yes. Suffering can become more widespread. Yes. Liberties could be lost. Yes, and all of that stuff is worth, worth working on. Yeah. Our congregation right. is full of people who spend their lives working on those matters, and I'm glad they do. Please yeah. keep doing that. Fight to preserve and protect all of that. Yes expand. And yet, it's not final. No, and if it were final, and, and, and honestly, I know we, we did this whole series because we were concerned about the polarization in our society and ways we could feel. Uh, some people are listening to stupid people on Twitter, and um, they're being influenced by that more than the Book of Romans. So we thought, let's, why don't we just have some extra truth just chucked in here. Since yeah, right. Satan has cut off our main meals for six months, let's just Throw in a little extra teaching here, see if this helps. But, you know, even as starved as our congregation has kind of been, uh, we've been impressed at the unity that the Lord has preserved in our congregation. Really quite distinctly, it feels like, from the community around us. And really thankful for God's work. That for all the stresses and strains some members of the congregation feel, the congregation as a whole, uh, my assessment would be, has, has come through or is coming through uh, with real evidence of God's grace mm. and his spirit's work. Amen. Yeah. And Mark, Amen. Would, you, would you say that that thinking about the eschatology and God's sovereignty, all of that went into your, I think it was your fourth point, will be fine? That, that's all it is, because yeah. I have no promise other than that. Yeah. You know, I, I think things, I don't think Matthew's gospel promises that things are going to be as bad as they can possibly be before Christ comes back. Uh, I'm more agnostic on how we understand that because of other things Scripture says. In chapter 24. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that things can possibly be really terrible, uh, and yet that does not imperil the return of Christ one bit. And I do think it's also possible for things to improve. So one of the kind of uh, narratives that we sometimes have is that things have gotten worse and worse and worse. And 
there are certainly some things that have gotten worse and worse and worse, but there are some things that have gotten better. And I think if we want to be honest and careful in our thinking, we've got to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Not as acknowledging the good work that 19th century Republicans or 20th century Democrats did, but acknowledging a good and sovereign God mm -hmm. and everyone being made in the image of God. And so the, the, the sort of weird genius of the American system that the Lord's allowed to happen is so far there's been an amazing ability, even if horrible things like you know, tens of millions of, of babies aborted, even if that happens, there's this, this crab-like movement of these good things that are also happening. And uh, it, it's not going to be accurate to only focus on that which is bad, because there's also profound improvements that have happened, uh, which, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, that I could be shocked by that earlier living arrangement and just feel that so alien from what we at least mean to have now. Well, that's an advance. That's a good thing. And um, Wilfred McClay wrote uh, a textbook of American history called Land of Hope. And uh, I, I, I have, for the last 10, 20 years, thought that writing a textbook on American history these days must be one of the most extraordinarily difficult things imaginable. And I don't know McClay personally, but he, he did, I, I've, I've read much of it, we'll hope to finish it. He did an extraordinary job in, I think, having sort of both eyes. Huh. Uh, in seeing good and bad, and he titled the volume as a whole Land of Hope. Hmm. And I think that's correct. Hmm. I think that kind of catches a chord in America and American society and history that is resonant with the image of God in people and accurate historically. Hmm. That's helpful, brother. That's really helpful perspective. And to apply some of it more specifically, in your message, which I, I did too, you worked with three circles. Inner one, salvation matters, kind of core of the gospel and doctrines that are wrapped up in the gospel. Circle number two, church matters, things we have to agree about in order to form a body together, worship together regularly, have an ordered life together, things like who should be baptized, how does authority in the church play out. And then a third category outside of that, things you don't have to agree on to recognize each other as Christians, don't have to agree on in order to form a church together, you call disputable matters or matters of conscience. I think one challenge is that some issues kind of cut through those categories, and this came out in some of the conversation we had. Uh, there might be an ethical affirmation that on one level really is part of category one. If someone disobeyed it or advocated for its disobedience, well, that could be a level one calling yeah. salvation into question. But some of the vast different ways that we might have opportunities to engage about that issue or that people might choose to may well work their way out into disputable matters, mm -hmm. partly through a distinction between ends and means. What are we trying to obtain uh, and what are the ways by which we're seeking to obtain it? Or, or a, a similar distinction between principles and methods. Here's a principle taught in scripture, but then what's a, a method by which to seek to obtain that politically, socially, culturally, etc.? Can you just help us think about how maybe making some of those distinctions, ends, means, principles, methods, is important uh, for promoting and preserving unity? Do you see those as important tools? How does that work into how you want to shepherd this church toward more and more unity? I don't think those are necessarily helpful tools. I would just say if they appear immediately helpful to you, then they may be helpful. I think just to try to put it a little simpler, uh, there's going to be the, the kernel and the, and the shell of an issue. And we have to try to think about uh, what we think is a non-negotiable. So if we take uh, American history, uh, well, facts are facts. And we can have 
good-hearted debates over trying to learn the facts more accurately, much more difficult, important, and necessary is how you interpret those facts. Uh, and that's where you really have to learn some humility. Uh, you, you have to construe what you think is the case, realize that you're not God, you're not responsible ultimately for those other lives, you're responsible for your own. And then you get even more tenuous when you get out to trying to solve any problems that you think may have happened by those. So the fact that you're more tenuous in what the solution should be doesn't mean that they're unimportant, doesn't mean you don't have them. It does mean you've got to allow for space for people to disagree and to think otherwise and to be persuaded. So one of the, the, the intellectual habits I always try to cultivate is to be persuadable. That is, I, I would like to think that I have reasons for thinking what I think, and you can come and talk to me, and I might reasonably end up thinking something else because of a conversation we have. And the way you'll do that is not by yelling at me or threatening me. I mean, the way I'm built, you know, if I'm sitting outside having a meal and somebody starts standing around my table yelling at me because of what they suppose my political opinions would be, I, I lament that for our culture. I think it's horrible. I personally take a sick enjoyment and go ahead and eating right then very peacefully and in an undeserved fashion because something's wrong inside maybe. But um, I, th I think that we need, if we're going to progress as a society, uh, we need to be able to have civil conversations and disagreements. And part of the way we have those good disagreements is by sort of registering, am I talking about uh, a disagreement about our ends or do we really have the same end, the same goal? And we're now merely disagreeing about best ways to reach that. And we have to be aware too, kind of like your social media comments, that it is in the interest of certain parties to cause us to not think well and to go to base instincts and just go hard so that you will be shoved over to one side or the other. And that's where we have to be the ones to be the kind of adults in the room and go like, well, I can understand what she's saying and I don't really agree with that, but here's the good thing that I think she's getting at that I think we all have an interest in preserving that. So how do we have that conversation together? So, you know, so last week in the Q&A time, uh, there, were, there was more than one question where, you know, the person didn't feel confident of the way they asked the question. Uh, but to me, it was evident they're raising a really good issue for a Christian to think about. Uh, and I just, so I just wanted to try to affirm, well, that's, that's a good thing to care about. Uh, how do we care about that well or better? I think those are the kind of uh, civilities that we want to model in our personal interactions as Christians, and certainly as members of this church. You, this is a related matter, you have often talked about Robert Benny, the Lutheran political philosopher, his distinction between straight line issues yeah. and jagged line issues. Do you want to just unpack that distinction for us and what yeah. use does it have for us as a church? Benny teaches down in Virginia. I've interviewed him on the Nymarsh website. You can listen to that interview. It was six or seven years ago. He wrote a book called Good and Bad Thinking About Religion and Politics. And uh, Benny is in the mainline ELCA, the mainline Lutheran Church. I think he's more conservative theologically, but that's where he is. Uh, so he has a lifelong experience of being in more sort of liberal circles as a more conservatively minded person, and even in academia as a professor. One of the distinctions he makes uh, about morality in public matters is there are straight line issues and jagged line issues. Straight line issues where you can reason very quickly and easily from uh, a, a moral principle to a policy implication. And we, we could find those, I think, 
for us, we would see abortion as being a very clear one of those. It's not there aren't questions you can't ask around the edges, but the basic thought is super clear. There are others that could be more jagged. So, uh, for example, uh, one friend brought up last uh, week the idea of immigration. And we were thinking about immigration, which is, is a fine thing to bring up. Um, but it's, it's a more jagged line issue. Jagged not meaning dangerous. Jagged meaning the implications one would draw about what a Christian position must be are far less direct. No less direct that we must care for the immigrants. Certainly true. But less direct in the sense of there are different biblical assurances you would have, uh, different thoughts about nation states, the sovereignty of states, the obedience, the laws of the state. So there's, there's all kinds of gradations that go into certain issues where there's just going to be more debate among Christians about them. And I think it's there in some interview recently, I brought up the good example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. about when he was, was deciding in the, in the to... the Q&A. Yeah. Okay, yeah, when he was deciding to work to assassinate Hitler, he, even as straight-line an issue as you and I may think that is... Bonhoeffer realized that that's a jagged line issue because he's, he's thinking about taking a human life when he's not himself personally endangered. Uh, and that's a, a godlike authority to usurp. But in his own mind, it was more and more clearly the conscientious thing to do. But he separated himself from his local church and he brought some other Christians along who agreed with him and then that's the context in which he was going to, to act. Well, I think that's, that showed a great sensitivity to what are those things that I can assume we're going to have agreement upon? And what are those things that I realize you could disagree with me and still love the Lord Jesus? Um, but yeah, I'm going to go over here this way on this question. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, you asked me about my social media comments at the beginning. I had to look it up, but I remember my last one. Oh, yeah. Uh, social media tempts you to adopt the role of the teacher without having the training or submitting to the accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, social media as a means of kind of persuasion. Oh, I can convince you of my stance on this issue. Well, you're adopting a kind of teacher-like posture, but with no filters. You know, nobody has put you there. Nobody has recognized you. And there's just, not to say that can never be, that can never be helpful, not to say that can never be a good stewardship, um, but there's a lot of reasons and a lot of gatekeepers in different, uh, different realms, whether teaching in the classroom or, or being a published journalist or an academic or even a teaching office in the church. But speaking of teaching office in the church and social media, um, this is a question for either of you. Whether social media or any other public kind of statement, do all of our church's elders run everything we say publicly past all the other elders? Do the elders as a whole act as a filter on everything any elder says? Well, that's a little bit different than the first thing you said. I mean, them to be kind of, well, what's the difference you would see? Filter, maybe, effectively. But run everything by, certainly not. That would be impossible. So the answer to the, fil- to the run everything by is no. You Im- don't Absolutely do impossible. But do you, you mean don't. to the second? Or sorry, you asked you, me. Mark doesn't do that. Do you do that, Isaac? No. Do you understand you have responsibility to do that? No. So but neither, I, neither yeah. of you run everything past all the elders. Right. But now you mean by filter. Yeah, you know, that, that we're going to have a, a, a sense of not just the elders, but of CHPC. So if I'm going to say something publicly that I think would cause problems inside CHPC, I almost certainly wouldn't say it. So if you see me saying something publicly, uh, you and I as private citizens may be free to disagree, and I don't think I'm bound to only do what can pass a congregational vote, you know, so I'm not saying that, but I, I just think that my intention is to edify with my words, and uh, you, you have to allow some space for disagreement about what you and I may think is edifying, 
But certainly I don't think that I should just freely sort of use my liberty of speech to say anything that I want to personally say as the pastor of a church. But honestly, I don't think you should do that as a member either. Uh, I, think, I think we're accountable to each other. And, when, and, and certainly I've, I've seen this happen in all kinds of ways. Uh, elders who have questions about what other elders are saying or teaching, go to them directly. Uh, and I've seen that happen countless times in our church and everything from political matters to dating advice. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, elders speak to members all the time about matters that members bring up. And, and members, uh, well, at least regularly email this elder, I can tell you, about things that they don't agree with or have further questions about, which is great. Uh, and members, I know, do that with each other. So I think, on my, my experience, there's a pretty lively economy of us looking and 98% of what people say is never going to draw any comment, but it's always the one or two percent. So if I'm about to go into a, a, an arena that I think, ooh, this could be, uh, this would be difficult, then I'm going to definitely proactively try to run it by some people. You sure, know. so you'll sort of self-impose oh, a filter, yeah. get yeah. feedback, seek yeah. counsel. But, but if, you just take any of, if you just take the last Sunday morning sermon that any of the three of us preached, I, I don't think any of us would have run the sermon by others, but we probably also assume we're not going to say anything that's going to be of any particular disagreeable nature to yeah. Christians. And I think we all, and Mark, you modeled this well, both in, in terms of seeking feedback in general, just to learn and grow, but I think also when you, when you might have a more sensitive project you're working on, you will sort of involve multiple counselors. I think yeah. you set a good example of that. And so I certainly have a sense as a pastor uh, if, it's a, if it's a more sensitive subject, whether yeah. to preach on or to write about or something, I'll feel that much uh, that it's that much more wise to kind of get detailed, yeah. proactive input, especially from other elders yeah. and just other pastorally mature members. Isaac, anything you would add to this dynamic of are all, yeah, are you running everything by the elders? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I think the elders would just be miserable if I sent them every one of my tweets uh, ahead of time, um, and I'd be miserable too. But I think it's just a reminder that as Christians, and I like Mark, you saying, I think we do have a special responsibility as elders, uh, but generally just as Christians and the members of this congregation, uh, that uh, there is a higher bar than even our own honesty, our own um, our own rights, and that's edification mm -hmm. and unity. And I think that goes back to Ephesians 4.29, say this if you're going to say it. So just because it's honest doesn't mean it's true. Um, and I think there, there have been times where I've run, uh, you know, certain ideas or thoughts of past one of you two, and you said, yeah, or, or I, don't, I don't even know if you've said that, but you uh, maybe this or that, and that's been really useful and fruitful. I think God is glorified in that. I think the kids are helping one another in that sense. Um, and so, and I, and I like, Mark, what you were talking about, just kind of, I think, in that second point, if I'm understanding you're saying there's an implicit filter that's, uh, that's always operating kind of informally, organically, uh, and I think that's true and right, because I try to think through that. Uh, and I find the differences do come in those wider, in those areas where you're saying we might disagree about what's ultimately edifying or helpful, and then those are fruitful conversations for us to have. Any other comments or comments you want to make or questions you want to ask among the three of us before we... Open it up. No, I've done a good job.